0: Last week we began to look at a section in scripture and I want to continue that. So turn with me to John chapter 12 as we are working our way through John's gospel. Last week we looked at verses 12 through 19. This week we will finish the thought, if you will, as we look at verses 20 through 36. And last week, we, we started discovering that uh, Jesus is indeed declaring his kingship as he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, but we started to discover together that it was going to be a different kind of king than was expected. Uh, last week, we looked at Jesus being a peaceful king, not peace, he wasn't coming to bring peace between nations. He was coming to bring peace between God and man. We, we looked at some, some verses that, that talked about our natural condition before God is not one of friend or one that is neutral, but one that, is, that has animosity in it. And God, and Jesus came as the king to bring peace between God and man, as we looked at Romans 5. We also looked and saw that he was a different kind of king in another way. He didn't just come to bring peace, but he came to be a spiritual king, not a physical king. He wasn't coming to bring a physical kingdom. He was coming to bring a spiritual kingdom. All the crowd were looking for Jesus to bring this physical geographic kingdom back to Israel. And what Jesus was showing us is that he was the, the geography of Israel was not his concern at this time. It was the geography of our heart. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom and it grows as his kingdom grows by people being converted People understand that Jesus is Lord. And in our text today, we're going to look at the last uh, difference that Jesus brings. Jesus proclaims in our text today his coronation would be in a totally different manner. Look with me at John chapter 12, starting verse 20. So he has triumphantly entered Jerusalem to the hosannas and to the palm fronds being shaken. And now let's pick up our reading in verse 20. Now, there are some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they asked, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew... And Andrew and Philip, in turn, told told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, the man who loves his life will lose it. Well, the man who hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glory it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So here we have, either the same day or maybe the next day, some Greeks coming to the feast. There were uh, Gentiles who, who had converted to Judaism. And they wanted to have an audience. They had heard that Jesus was there and they wanted to have an audience with him. Do you see that in the first couple verses? They go to Philip and Philip in turn tells Andrew and then Andrew and Philip in turn go and tell Jesus that there are these people that want to have an audience with King Jesus. And you can almost see the the physical hierarchy starting to develop there, can't you? You know, they're acting as if... Again, Jesus is this this physical king that's going to come and restore and the court is starting to develop. And Jesus will have none of that. He tells them in no uncertain terms that he is not going to be this kind of king. He's not going to have to be a king with a court and courtiers. He's going to be the kind of king that is going to die and that's what seems like it's such a non-sequitur there in verse 23. He wants to lead with that. He's debunking what they are, are trying to create there. And he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They come and say, Jesus, there's some people that want to see you. Should we allow them into your presence? And he, he just cuts through everything. He says, listen, guys, you don't understand what kind of king I'm going to be. I'm going to be a sacrificial king. I'm here to sacrifice myself. Jesus is pronouncing this for perhaps the umpteenth time in his ministry. If you read through the Gospels, you see this. This is his purpose. This is his mission. This is why he was born. He was born to die. He told them directly so many times that the turning point in Matthew's gospel is chapter 16, when Peter declares who Jesus is. And that's when, in that gospel, Jesus comes out and starts telling them plainly what his mission is. In verse 21, he says... From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the dead the third day. He, he's telling them directly. He's telling them plainly over and over again in his ministry. In Luke 9:44, he tells his disciples again. I love how the, uh, the ESV puts it. He turns to his disciples and he says this, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. He's telling them directly, openly, this is what I've come to do, guys. I haven't come to reign here on earth. I've come to die. I've come to sacrifice. Many times he described it directly like that, but but many, many times he described this type of king, this sacrificial king he was going to be indirectly, didn't he? We've seen it m- multiple times in John already. In John 2, 18 and 19, he describes it in terms of the temple, doesn't he? He says, hey listen, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. He's saying, using the temple imagery, what's going to happen to him. In the very next chapter, when Nicodemus comes to talk to him, he tells Nicodemus using Old Testament imagery. Remember, he uses the the um, uh, numbers when they when they were in the wilderness and, and they had sinned and attacked by snakes, and God said, "Raise up a snake on a pole, and anyone who looks at it will be saved." And Jesus borrows from that when he's talking to Nicodemus, and he said. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And people understood what that meant. That meant death. The Son of Man will be lifted up, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And even earlier in this chapter, we looked at when Mary uh, poured perfume on Jesus' head and on his feet, how did how did Jesus frame that? What context did he put that in? He put that in burial context, didn't he? You know, when, Jews, when Judas says, "Hey, hey, hey, hold on, we could we could sell that perfume and, and and make a mint," he says, "Hey, this was intended to prepare me for my burial." And so here in verse 23, he is again interjecting the type of king he's going to be. I'm going to be a sacrificial king. I've come for this hour to be glorified. There's going to be a kingly glory. There is going to be a glorious reign. There is going to be citizenry in this kingdom. We're going to talk about that a little later in the sermon. There's going to be citizenry but not the way you think. Look at verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I mean, he's talking about his own life there. How is he going to be glorified? How is this kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, going to come into being? by the king dying like a kernel of wheat in the ground. Jesus came to sacrifice himself. And he explains three aspects of this death that I want us to explore today and then apply it to our lives. And the first aspect that I think we see here is that this sacrificial death is planned. It's a planned event. Look with me at verse 27. Jesus there is talking. He says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Why is Jesus's heart troubled? Why? Why all of a sudden is he in some type of angst? Didn't he realize that this was this was the plan all along? No, he says it right there. This, for this very hour, I've come. This, this was planned all along. Jesus' death on the cross was the climax of God's massive plan of redemption. The British sculptor, Sir Jacob Epstein, was once visited in his studio by the author George Bernard Shaw. Shaw looked over into the corner of his studio and saw a massive four ton block of marble and he asked Epstein he said what, what what do you have plans for that and Epstein said I don't know yet I'm still planning that Shaw was astounded by this and he said this you mean you plan your work I changed my mind many times a day to which Epstein replied that's very well for a four ounce manuscript but not with a four ton block of marble I think it's important for us to be reminded from time to time, and I think this text does this, that Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and raised the third day was the plan from the very beginning. He did not change his mind at the fall. He did not react to our action. This was the plan from the very, very beginning. Please turn with me in your right to the Bi- in your Bible to Ephesians chapter one. I think it's important for us, and, and I would suggest that you mark Ephesians one and remind yourself from time to time that, that God wasn't caught off guard by Adam and Eve. That he knew what he was doing from the very beginning. And and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, he's reminding us of that. Look with me at verse 3. He says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. How? Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have, in who? In Jesus Christ. He's explaining the plan of redemption before time began. In him we have redemption through his blood. Yes, the cross was the plan. And forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Isn't that a wonderful word? That he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ before time began, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Jesus Christ. And we'll finish with verse 11. In him, in Jesus Christ, we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. Beautiful. Yeah, you know, I had to hold it together to read that glorious scripture. Because Jesus, we have we don't have this in Scripture, but it's intimated here that that, that the Godhead in some way Communicated and chose, and Jesus stepped forward and said, I will die. I will die. This was the plan before the foundations of the earth. And we get glimpses of it throughout scripture. Right after the fall in chapter 4, the first several verses, we find God killing the first animals, sacrificing the first animals to clothe Adam and Eve. What a wonderful symbol, early symbol, of what being clothed in Jesus Christ was going to be like. In Genesis 22, we have that wonderful picture of God calling Abraham, to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac and just before he's going to plunge the knife into his son and he was there's a ram given to substitute for the son beautiful imagery the watershed moment that we go back to again and again of Passover that the, the the Passover affected all of life for the Israelites. As Jesus is coming to the the Passover, the, the Passover that it was to point to, fifteen hundred years later in our text here. That that beautiful taking the perfect lamb and taking its blood and smearing it on the doorposts to say. We trust you, Christ. We trust you and your word to pass over that death will not come to this house. Wonderful imagery there. You know, we go on and on with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He's reminding us again and again, this is the plan from the beginning. And here in verse 28 in our text, we see God, God the Father confirming that plan, don't we? You know, He says, Father, glorify your name. The voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I'll glory it again. This is God the Father confirming. This is the plan. And even though it was the plan, what's, what's really beautiful here and, and I hope I can communicate this, is even though Jesus has known from before the world was created that he was going to do this, he still struggles with it, doesn't he? It's, it's still a struggle for him. It's still problematic in his humanity. Look with me at verse 27 again. It says, My heart is troubled. He's struggling with going to the cross. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I mean, it's interesting that John does not have a Garden of Gethsemane narrative, if you will, like we do in the other synoptics. It's very interesting to me. I was thinking about that this week. Lord, why would you do that? But we see the struggle here that the garden showed a couple nights later. My heart is troubled. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? Father, let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will. That's what we're hearing here, this struggle that he's going through. He said, I'll do it before time began, and here he is, in his full humanity, struggling going to the cross giving voice to his inner monologue, if you will, that he was thinking about this. And it shows the struggle of that sacrifice. And what can we say? I I tell you what it did to my heart as as I meditated on it this week. His struggle makes me appreciate his sacrifice, all the more. Do you understand what I mean by that? Think about it. A snap decision, a quick, like, like reflex decision to save someone and sacrifice yourself is amazing. You know, I think of the stories of, of the mothers who saw a crash coming and took their infant and took the, the blow themselves, died, but saving the infant, you know, in that split second, you know or a father pushing their son out of the way of a truck and him taking the full impact that that kind of gut instinct that's amazing, but think about if you knew that was coming and had time to contemplate that. Jesus has been. Cognizant of this sacrifice, this horrible—not only physical pain, but spiritual pain of being separated for ever. Since, since I mean, even if we can just talk about the three years of his earthly ministry, for those times he's teaching and preaching, he knows where he's going and when he's going. He knows it's coming. He knows what's in store, and that makes you appreciate and love his sacrifice all the more, doesn't it? You know, maybe I'm using uh Lord of the Rings more often these days because my a couple of my kids and I just finished watching the trilogy again, but there's this one scene in the beginning of Return of the King, the third movie, where where Sam Gamgee is is uh, they're on their way to Mordor, and he's counting how much food they have. I don't know if you remember this scene, and he's and Frodo looks over and goes, "What are you doing, Sam?" And Sam goes, "Well, I, I'm I'm making sure we have enough food for the return journey." And you see Frodo's face, you know, it tells the tale. He knows he's not coming back. He's known for a long time. This is a one-way journey. Frodo is going to sacrifice himself for this mission. And it really makes you love that character. You know, I love Frodo. He's willing to do that. He knows what he's doing. and That's what it does when you realize that Jesus knew what he was going to do. It makes you love Appreciate what he's going to do for you and for me. So much more. He knew he was what was going to be required of him, and he he struggled with it, and he still went to the cross for you and me. That's amazing. So Jesus is showing us that the cross was the plan from the beginning, that he struggled with the plan but also how powerful the plan was going to be. It was going to be very powerful. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, The voice was for your benefit, not mine. That's the voice of the Father. Now it is time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth... Will draw all men to myself. Excuse me. I remember uh, Mark Dever just recently remarking on some verses that shock him when he reads the gospel. He was talking about in Luke 10 when he sends the 72 disciples out and they come back and they're so astounded, they're like, hey, listen, the demons listen to us. This is amazing. And Jesus, the very next line, says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Hold it. Jesus, you're saying that you were there (laughs) when Satan was cast out? You know, kind of jaw-dropping things make you stop in your tracks and go, who is this guy? And this is another one of these right here. Jesus brings up the effect of his death, of his sacrifice, and his resurrection. See, the cross is going to cover our guilt, but it's going to convict Satan of his, right? Now's the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. You ever wonder why I pick certain verses for us to read aloud? It's not just to take up room in the worship service. It's to tie things together. Ephesians 2 is telling us who the prince of this world is. It's Satan. The prince of this world is Satan. The power that he has is real here. And Jesus is saying, listen, when I die, that power that he has is going to be broken. He's going to be convicted. Now we have yet to see that sentence meted out. We, we praise God he gave John the wonderful revelation and we see that it, that's how it's going to end, that sentence being enacted. But his—he's he, as Mark says, he's a tethered foe now. The strong man has been, has been bound up. That's that's the power of the cross. And it not only only convicts Satan, but the cross, what it does is it enthrones Jesus and dethrones Satan. The cross, which, which creates gospel citizens like you and me, releases Satan's grip on us. Isn't that wonderful? That's the power of the cross. That's what our reading in Ephesians 2 is all about. Yes, once you and I followed our natural desires. Yes, once you and I followed the ruler of the air. How scary is that? Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) In our natural self, we follow Satan. We look to him and go, yep, mm -hmm, he's the guy. But we've been released from all that. Once you were dead and now you're alive, once you were disobedient, now you have the ability to be obedient to Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And that's all given to us through Jesus' sacrifice. Satan's grip on us has been released. And today, if you're sitting here and you call yourself a Christian, you say, yep, if I were to say, are you a Christian? You nod your head. You're saying that you understand that you cannot save yourself. That you need someone else to live the kind of life that that the Bible tells us to live. Because we can't do it. And Jesus did that perfectly. If you sit here and call yourself a Christian today, you understand that Jesus was God incarnate and that he went to the cross for you. He had you on his mind. I am going to take the wrath of God for Blake Brown. And he extends to Blake Brown, fill in your own name, his perfect righteous record. And that's how God sees you. That's how God relates to you. As his son. Not as a stumbling, guilty sinner. As a righteous son of God if you're sitting here today and that's your experience, Satan's grip is loosed on you, gone. And you have the ability to follow Christ. You should have a new desire. The Holy Spirit gives you a new desire. And that desire is to follow your Savior. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, this is the kind of citizenry that this new kingdom has. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. You see, a sacrificial king requires sacrificial citizens. A sacrificial king requires sacrificial citizens. Tullian Chivijan wrote in his very first newsletter to Coral Ridge Church that he was becoming a pastor of, he, he wrote this in the newsletter. The first line, I invite you to come and die with me. Now, regardless of what you think of Tullian, he's right on the mark. Because that's what Christ is inviting us to here. Come and die with me. Sacrificial king requires sacrificial citizenry. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't a, you know, cultic, macabre, Jim Jones, heaven gate type dying. It's a dying to yourself. It's a dying to yourself. Verse 25, if you look at that verse, there, there's life is used three times in that verse. But there's two Greek words that are used there. The first one is used twice. The first two times life is used. Whoever loves this life will lose it while this man hates his life in this world will keep it. That Greek word there, "suke," means your will. It, It has the connotation of having your desires your opinions, your will in it. The second word in the last part of the verse, eternal life, is the word zoe there. That talks about biological life, but he puts the adjective on there, eternal life. So he's talking about the divine life. So Jesus is saying in order to enjoy zoe life, eternal life, you must hate or put to death your suke life, your will, your desires, your dreams for the future. Boyce, James Boyce clarifies and says, every Christian has the divine or eternal life right now, but he has it. In its fullness only when his entire personality with all its likes and desires are surrendered to Christ. In other words, your independent will must die so that you're freed to do God's will. I have a little quote next to the exit in my office. It's a quote by George Mueller. For those of you who might not know who George Mueller is, he was a pastor and missionary that lived pretty much from the beginning to the end of the 1800s, the 19th century. He was a pastor for many years and he preached three times a week and it's said that he preached over 10,000 sermons in his lifetime. When he turned 70, those of you who have turned 70, when he turned 70, he fulfilled a dream of his. You know what that dream was? To go to some foreign land and serve as a missionary. And he served as a missionary for 17 years until he was 87. When he was 28 years old, he founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute. And one of its five goals was to board and clothe and spiritually educate destitute children who have lost both parents to death. Mueller lived and did all this without ever asking for a nickel. He believed passionately that you should live by faith. So, as a pastor, he never took a salary. As a missionary, he never asked anybody for money. The orphanages that were, that were peppering England, he never asked for money, but he prayed. Imagine living like that. What gave him the ability to do that? How did he do that? How was he so free to do so much with seemingly so little? The quote that I read as I leave my office by him says this. There was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. His opinions, his preferences, his tastes, his will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved to God. That's what Jesus is saying here we have to die to. You and me, we have to die. We have to die to our opinions opinions. We have to die to our preferences. We have to die to our tastes. We have to die to our will. We have to die to the world and its approval. Boy, we're talking a lot about that in Sunday school. We're dying to the fear of man. We have to die to the approval or blame of our friends, our family, even people in our own churches. We have to seek the approval of one. And that is Jesus Christ. That's the biblical definition of losing your life. And that is tough, guys. That's not easy. Because, as Soren Kierkegaard wrote, we tend to be admirers of this truth and not followers. Did you catch that? We tend to be admirers of this truth not followers of it. We don't like the sound of dying to ourselves. We admire people that do it. Pastor, read me more about George Mueller or Adoniram Judson or Martin Luther or Hudson who went to China. Give me all those wonderful sermon illustrations so I can smile and nod my head. We love to hear them. We admire the people that do them. Soren Kierkegaard says, we are not followers of that truth. He writes this, if you have any knowledge of at all of human nature, you know that those who are only admirers of this truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with the false security of greatness. But if there is any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Christ, however, never asked for admirers or adherents. He constantly spoke of followers and disciples, and that's exactly what he's asking for here. Those who serve me will follow me. Jesus warns those who love this life, those who seek the approval of this world, those who put the world's preferences and tastes and opinions and approval above God's, those who seek meaning and purpose and value in this life, those who fear man more than God, if we can put it into the, into the language of our Sunday school, have already received their reward. I wish I could candy coat it for you guys. I wish I could now give you a sermon illustration or a quote that would say, but it's okay not to live that way can't do it. Scripture does not give us that. It doesn't mean you have to do all that George Mueller did. It doesn't mean you have to live on prayer alone. It doesn't mean that. But Christ does ask, are you willing to do that? Because a sacrificial king, sacrificial king requires sacrificial citizens. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray that you'll use it for, boy, it's hard to pray, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus name, amen.